0: Hello, and welcome to the 36th episode of the Killing Time podcast. My name is Arch Grieve, and I'm your host. And as always, coming at you from Dayton, Ohio. And today is the 27th of April, 2020. So um, I'm excited today. I get to talk to a friend of mine. Um, and her name is Dr. Amy Hubbard. And she is a, um, an associate professor at Wright State University in anthropology. She's a dental anthropologist and bioarchaeologist whose research area focuses on using teeth and genetic variation to interpret patterns of population movement, interaction, and exchange in prehistoric Kenya. She's also a big kayaker and an outdoors person, so I'm looking forward to talking with her a little bit on the show, so uh, let's give her a call and see what's going on. Hey, how's it going?
1: Good, how are you?
0: I'm good. What's going on?
1: Uh, not much. I'm just sitting on the couch relishing in the fact that I, um, I'm done
0: teaching as of uh, yesterday. Oh, congratulations. That's very exciting.
1: Thank you. Yeah. yeah.
0: Lots of grading now,
1: though? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come <laughs> Tuesday, because students have to email me about a couple things before I start calculating. I got
0: gotcha. you. So you have a little bit of a, like a little slice of downtime? Uh, yeah.
1: Now I can actually catch up on all the things that I didn't have time. I have the opposite. <laughs> My uh, podcast would be called, uh, I have no time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, finding
1: time, maybe? <laughs>
0: yes, yes. Well, thank you for finding the time to talk with me. I appreciate it. Um. Yeah. So my, my typical thing is I start off by asking people how their jobs have changed as a result of the pandemic, and obviously you're doing a lot of online teaching now. How's that going?
1: Um, you know, if you had asked me that the first week, I would have been like, this is my ultimate nightmare.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
1: it was a lot of work. Um, there were a lot of um, challenges to teaching online but in some ways there were certain aspects of it that worked a lot better than I could have imagined, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, obviously the big one for me, if I think about it, is just the fact that um, my classroom is all about building relationships and community. Um, so that's between students, that's um, between the students and myself, right? Like there's a lot yeah. of difficult and complex topics that we discuss, and so you have to be uh, developing a trust with them that you know you're not leading them astray, you're trying to push them into some sort of way of thinking. And since this time around, at least I had them face to face for a few weeks, I felt like I still at least got to develop that kind of relationship, yeah. Um, but I have to say, if we go remote in the fall that's my big question is how do you create community in an online environment? You know, especially Mm -hmm. when people have not necessarily bought in, they might be saying, I'm taking this class because it's a science credit. Um, You know, I don't expect to learn that much, but I have to do what I have to do to complete this requirement. At least when I'm face to face and I can kind of engage them in that way and they can engage each other, I have a fighting chance that they will drop the narrative that um, they're, you know, quote-unquote, not a science person.
0: Right.
1: But I'm not sure how that's going to work um, if I've never physically seen them face-to-face. I mean, they'll have seen my face yes. in that video, but that's about it. So that, would be that was kind of the most, yeah, that was the most devastating part of it. You know, I really do enjoy my students. Um, and it's not very satisfying, I find, in that way, in engaging them in that environment. But in other ways, you know, the technology is pretty amazing, even from two years ago when I sort of looked into how do you record lectures and how does this work, a lot of this technology didn't seem to be, either either it was in existence and it wasn't that like um, uh, sort of widely available or ubiquitous, but um, I was pleasantly surprised how easy it was to record a lecture Um, and how I could actually do that while also offering a synchronous option. So one of the reasons I I say I've been finding time is I gave my students who wanted that face-to-face the option to log on during our normal class time, and I would lecture and record it, and the students who wanted to do it on their own could then download that video. That's cool. So I offered sort of synchronous and asynchronous. Yeah. But it was a lot of work.
0: Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Did you just do that like in – I guess you guys have a platform you use, I'm sure, for for that. Yeah,
1: we don't um, – we use something called Desire to Learn, but they yeah. somehow integrate with this program in Blackboard called um, Collaborate Ultra. So I haven't been using Zoom at all.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Um, so I've experienced a lot fewer technical difficulties, it seems, compared to my peers. Um, it's, you can't really easily hack into – someone's Collaborate Ultra session, so (laughs) in that sense, it was less stressful than some of the things that I heard happen to people in their
0: classrooms. Well, so I was doing a a tiny bit of show prep, and I I, I don't, well, yeah, so anyways, I was doing a tiny bit, and I don't feel like I've ever really heard about your research area um, when I was looking up on on right state i was reading your uh, your bio uh-huh. page and um it said it was looking at prehistoric kenya through teeth and i'm uh-huh. curious to know what do we know about um that prehistoric kenya because <laughs> of your research it's like because i don't think i've ever asked you about that so
1: yeah so my research is a little deceiving um there's kind <laughs> of two areas so my my big area is um as the unfortunately name title of that article that you probably saw linked there, um, right. Say professor studies, dead people's teeth. <laughs> <laughs> my, my specialty in the human skeleton, um, is looking at the variation in the shape and size of people's teeth. And, um, so your teeth, you know, when you, you, when you're alive, I guess, technically, so I could give you a little rundown on on what you can do with teeth. Yeah. Um, You know, when you are um, starting to form in utero, you get the beginnings of of some of your first set of teeth. And um, they grow from the tip down to the root that anchors into your jaw, which is interesting. So they form in a little sort of crypt, and then they um, form the top part, and then they grow down. So you have two sets of teeth, Um, And your second set of teeth is done growing and erupting, usually by about 18 years of age, but um, you can have some variation. Like I didn't have some of my molars that I was supposed to have by uh, age 18, so they had to go in and extract them, right? So they didn't become impacted. Okay. So um, what's interesting about teeth compared to bone is those different sets of teeth record essentially before you're born – until about 15 years of age worth of growth Uh because your tooth grows and then it erupts, right? Uh So your tooth material compared to your bone doesn't change once it's formed. I mean, you can lose mineral contents, but it doesn't actually change shape or size. Hmm. Your bones, on the other hand, you know, you're born, uh, you get to a point where they're their maximum size, but depending on if you favor one side or you start, I don't know, um, lifting heavy weights or running or whatever, um, your bones will actually change, uh, shape hmm. and size slightly. So oh, these okay. are actually this like permanent record of your growth, um, throughout your life. Well, through your early years of life. Yeah. So I kind of have two areas that I've looked at in my research. And the first is looking at, um, disruptions of that growth which get recorded inside the teeth and sometimes also present themselves on the the outside surface and um that's to kind of look at okay this person um their cells had to turn off growing because something happened now what happened it could have been you know um they got an infection it could have been that they got really sick it could have been energy was being transferred from their tooth growth into some area of their body because something significant happened, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was one area that I was looking at. But when I started that research, I realized it's a lot of microscope work, teeny tiny structures, and to really do (laughs) that kind of work, you have to get into some pretty intense technology, and um, there's only like two major technologies around the world that can really get... The level of detail inside of the teeth that that I would want to okay. uh, look at, so that makes it kind of difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and the technology is also used by physicists, and you know, so it's not just anthropologists looking at dead people's okay. teeth.
0: Gotcha. So
1: um, I kind of stepped away from the microscope, and I had been working in Kenya as an undergraduate uh, with the Field Museum in Chicago. And uh, I really wanted to go and be a part of this project called the Kasegal Archaeological Research Project. And they were looking at this area in southeastern Kenya where most of sort of the early caravan networks were from the coast. So when boats would come in during a certain season and they'd bring in their materials, they'd put them on caravans and they'd bring them in towards the interior and trade with
0: people. Hmm.
1: And so there was a group of archaeologists at the Field Museum, at um, National Museums of Kenya, uh, University of Illinois Chicago, Northwestern, a lot of Chicago institutions, because it was mostly curators from the Field Museum. But
0: Hmm.
1: um, their interest was looking at that time period, but also even earlier, because the narrative in uh, East Africa about trade networks was almost as if you know, Africans were waiting for um, uh, people from Asia, people from Europe, to show up before they did any trade. And in fact, you know, there was all sorts of trade going on throughout Africa, and gold, and um, in this particular area, was iron, uh, huh. iron ore, and, and smelted technologies. Huh. So, you know, metal, metal objects, and weapons, and stuff. Yeah. So um, this team really wanted to sort of shift that storyline, but they needed to understand, okay, all these little interconnected communities, how often were they coming into contact? You could look through the goods that you find in in the soil, you know, if they preserve, but there's also potentially a biological record of that. So what we were trying to figure out is are there techniques we could use to see, okay, is there more genetic influence from, say, you know, um, India and China um, in that later period um, than when you look at, um, you know, older populations. So we were going to look at both living and uh, skeletonized populations. Interesting, okay. And you can do that with DNA, but in Kenya, the soil is really acidic. Along the coast, it's really wet, and so the bone breaks down, and there's the DNA is quality is bad for mm-hmm. ancient stuff. Mm-hmm. So my role was going to be figuring out how to do this with teeth and then maybe also bone, like wow. char- those characteristics. Because we all have ancestors, and it turns out that the um, – the little bumps and grooves on your teeth, the, the shape components, uh, seem to be linked to things that you inherit familially, hmm. which come uh, usually through a long line of ancestry, and they don't seem to be things that like pop up randomly if you change your food type or things like that.
0: Sure.
1: So the thought was we could use this to sort of get some broader global pictures and we wanted to see could we do it on a, a local scale. So as a student Um, I went to my advisor and I said, you know, I'm reading all these books on teeth and I don't see anything that says who, like, like when something is written and there's no citation, it means it's common knowledge. Like the sky is blue. You don't have to cite the first person who who Mm -hmm. explained that or why the sky was blue Mm -hmm. anymore because it's common knowledge. And so the part about the use of this technique with local populations, it wasn't cited. It was just used, you know, it's assumed that If you look at the dental characteristics at a local level, it'll tell you the same thing or similar patterns of um, genetic connections or ancestry between uh, populations using DNA. And I said, well, who did this study? Like, was it done a million times? I can't even find one. (laughs) And she said, no, it's just assumed. They Uh know that it works. Like, if you compare someone, let's say, all the way in Indonesia to someone... Uh, Some populations in Kenya, you're going to have different frequencies of different kinds of traits that tend to pop up in different areas, but on a local level, no one had ever tested it. They just said it must work. So I actually didn't end up doing much of the prehistoric Kenya part of it. I just ended up having to totally, I I became the first person to test that assumption and I just happened to be working in Kenya. So what I did was I used information we knew historically about those trading networks and what the the team had found out archaeologically. And I said, okay, we can assume that people that are, let's say, in the same ethnic group are going to be more biologically similar and they're going to be more biologically different from people in a different ethnic group. Even if that larger, um, those ethnic groups belong to like a larger sort of cultural network. Right. And um, since two of the groups that lived on the coast also historically had a lot of um, people coming in and out from India, Asia, the Omani area, the Arabian Peninsula, the thought was, oh, there'd be a lot more chance for people to, you know, have babies together, right. <laughs> essentially, and, and for that genetic material to get into the population. Sure. So, um, I tested it and I did it, I I ended up using descendants, so living people instead of the skeletons. As I told you, they can't get the DNA from the skeletons very well. And so um, I worked with communities and I did that, but I also asked them, you know, what questions do you have? And so we were able to work in sort of just some additional genetic studies to answer questions separate questions they had but it ultimately wasn't part of the project if, if that makes sense because mm-hmm. um, i kind of was like how do i explain to to anyone even someone you know my neighbor down the street is going to be like wait why do you want to look at my <laughs> dna to, right. and my teeth it's <laughs> that's just weird so yeah. um you know sort of explaining like this is um you know, like a historical way, a way of looking at your history through your teeth. And, you know, we can also answer some other questions. So what kinds of questions do you have? So, yeah, did so we did, did those... find out... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Did we? No, no, you you go.
0: Oh, I was just going to ask if the, you know, what everyone believed to be true was actually what what you found. So.
1: Um, well, that's the thing, is we have to assume we had... So normally, like, you would do that kind of test, and you would say, okay, I assume this group and this group are going to be connected, maybe because of some pottery kind of industry. Mm -hmm. In this case, we had, you know, oral history. We had historical records. Normally, you would expect a few of the predictions wouldn't match. And for the mitochondrial DNA, uh, it didn't work at all. It was all over the place. People from different ethnic groups looked more similar and... Um, it was really strange yeah. the um, the nuclear DNA so DNA that's shared between it's a combo of like what you get from your your mom and your dad it's, it's what the DNA that makes up your chromosomes Okay. that DNA did work, it worked perfectly hmm. which was not expected yeah. so um, <laughs> that was really interesting and then the dental shape characteristics worked well enough to at least distinguish some of the differences by ethnic group. Okay. But I've played around with the data since to also like there were a couple of uh, going into the details of statistics, a couple of things that stood out to me that um, if you had a slightly different sample, like again, an ancient sample that's incomplete and you can't look across different parts of your chromosomes. That, that might have an impact and what's interesting is as i played around with the total number of people that i look at the total number of um sections of the dna basically that i sampled and if i um delete some of the chromosomes like because you have a whole bunch of them maybe i said okay i'm gonna not include three four and five and see what happens because again in an ancient dna setting maybe some of those can't be sequenced they obliterated and so i I looked at it and it just threw everything off nice (laughs) so the the basic um conclusion of that was you know we need to test this in other populations because most of the genetic variation that all humans have comes from the first humans that were in africa right Mm -hmm. so in a sense all of our DNA, our ancestors regionally, is genetic ancestry is about where your DNA is located, like geography and biology, your genetic, most of our genetic ancestry is in Africa. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a, 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 looking at African populations, it's going to, you're going to have a lot more variation to work with. If I look at a more, Genetically restricted population, maybe one that was known to have been like decimated or shrunk down. You might be able to get different kinds of information that could be helpful or harmful to that kind of study. Interesting. So, yeah, it's complicated.
0: (laughs) Um, Sounds like it.
1: (laughs) But nobody likes what I do because my... Uh, I feel like I test a lot. A lot of what I've ended up doing with my career is sort of testing the assumptions, saying I don't, mm-hmm. I don't buy into this. I'm not going to just accept this assumption. Let's see whether or not it works. And often the answer is not as well as you think. And there's a lot of things that could give you a false positive. So okay. let's just say that's not very popular.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. That. <laughs> All
1: your work could be BS.
0: <laughs> I uh, I can understand no. why someone might not take well to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but
1: I've also, I mean, my research has kind of taken a different um, turn, not initially of my own decisions, um, but uh, I ended up doing some research on teaching. And um, hmm. that work has actually gotten a lot more attention and interest nationally oh, wow. um, than any of my Dead People's Teeth
0: stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I know about your teaching research. What? But- What's that focus So
1: on? my teaching research, I mean, I'm really interested in like, um, to the point of that, like the tooth and the DNA comparison and my, my graduate dissertation stuff was, you know, there's all kinds of different variation um, biologically and genetically. And I'm always curious, like, when do you have enough biological variation that you can actually like tell the difference between two populations or between groups of people? Cause Uh, my sort of big area of specialty is called bioarchaeology and we're Mm -hmm. trying to work usually with cemetery populations and we're trying to figure out like, okay, these people are buried in a cemetery, but they were once alive. You know, what were their occupations? What was their status? You know, were they elite? Were they, um, you know, the working class, were they enslaved? Um, And then there's these other things that are like related to essentially how these communities were connected. And that's how, the kind of stuff that I'm, I was doing um, came in, yeah. And so um, that kind of made its way into my teaching because I realized that a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about human variation, both our physical variation and our genetic variation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So humans um, look very different, right? We right. physically look very different. Our skeletons don't look that different.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, there are some variations. You look at our DNA, we're really genetically similar. Mm-hmm. So like two penguins that look identical have more genetic variation than two people that look really different. Wow. So your physical outward expression of your your genes doesn't always match up. <laughs>
0: sure,
1: yeah. um, so this comes down um, in some really interesting ways when I'm teaching into how students misunderstand things like racial identity, Um, gender identity, disability. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, people tend to think that if you pick someone of a different race from you, so I'm white and let's say I pick someone who's black or African-American, most people, if you ask them, okay, so are they going to be more similar to each other or are they going to be more than different than they are from... People that are the same race, and people will always say, Oh, they're going to be more like genetically like the person that they look like, Mm -hmm. but that's not how it works.
0: Interesting, okay. So,
1: you have equal chances because it's about ancestry, it's not about physical features. Mm -hmm. Um, and then secondarily, uh, your racial identity is culturally variable. So, if I go to Kenya, they don't have the same racial identities, right? And I go to um, the Caribbean, where I grew up, racial identities are very different. So the idea of race and what makes up a group varies from culture to culture and isn't biologically identifiable.
0: Right.
1: Ancestry, yes. Race, no. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and the other um, identities, gender, it's kind of the same. People are like, oh, well, we assume that because females have two X chromosomes and males have an X and a Y and males have more testosterone yada, yada, yada. That the reason that we see differences in behaviors, um, and attitudes sometimes of males and females is because we're born to be different. Mm-hmm. That's also not correct. It doesn't mm-hmm. work that way. You know, our brain differences are cultivated by the way that we raise our children because that shapes our way of thinking. So by the time we look at an adult brain, It's already been shaped by culture. And then things like disability, you know, people will say, oh, there's a chromosomal defect. Even a language we use basically says, this isn't normal, this is abnormal. But even um, like human language would not have been possible without uh, chromosomal mutations that now are linked to um, cognitive disabilities. Hmm. Right. So pe- people tend to think of like disability as bad, but in fact because we're so genetically crappy mm-hmm. <laughs> um if we didn't have disabilities, if we didn't have um differences of any kind, even if they're small, we'd be extinct by now. Oh wow. That's crazy. <laughs> so um a lot of yeah, what I'm looking at is um I, I sort of started out by looking at how students conceptualize the biology of race, like mm-hmm. what they think it means. And then I tested out different ways of, um, deconstructing those ideas and was able to, to show that even if you only do, you know, a couple of activities, I happen to do three weeks of this, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, even if you do, you know, a couple of activities or there's a couple of videos, you can show that that still decreased their, um, bias, that um, or misconception that race is biologically based. Wow! And so I've That's sort beautiful. of been extending that to look at gender, and disability, and then I've been writing a lot for uh, biology education journals. I got invited to an American Association for the Advancement of Science special session. We actually got interviewed, like by news reporters and stuff. It was wild. Wow! Cool. Um, to talk to people about how. Um, Particularly in biology and genetics education, we have to talk about um, these identities and these misconceptions, because if we don't, students are just assuming that they know what the answer is, right? Yeah. Like, we're not talking about race, but here's what I think. Mm-hmm. So.
0: That's really cool.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. I've really been enjoying
0: that. It reminds me of a, uh, when I was teaching at the STEM school, I used to, we the last year I taught there, I was teaching, like, an eighth grade U.S. history class, and um, they're really big into like project-based learning and inquiry learning. And, mm-hmm. um, we had kind of this question that we were trying to explore in all the classes and I forget how we worded it exactly, but it was, um, basically how has race had an impact on, um, uh, or how, how does race impact people's lives? And we would look at that through mm-hmm. science and history and, um, and other subjects. And, um, I, I remember I, I learned a lot, um, just a little bit about what you're talking about with, um, just how much of our, um, conception of race has this erroneous biological component to it that doesn't exist really, um, or isn't justified. So, um, it was fascinating. So.
1: And it's wild because, you know, um, if you're teaching, let's say a biology class, um, you typically, if you're going to be covering race, it's going to be like, okay, how, you know, how useful is race in medicine? Okay, Mm -hmm. understanding how doctors perceive race impacts, um, you know, how they um, give out pain medicine. That's been well-documented, right? So essentially Mm -hmm. racism. Um, And then, you know, things like that. But a lot of times what ends up happening is a biologist, if they do cover it, they'll be like, race is not biologically real. Boom, done. Mm -hmm. If you see, you know, the social scientists, they're gonna say discrimination is bad. This is um, a culturally constructed notion. Boom, we're done. And what they've found in studies of each is that, um, and I see this all the time in mine. If I, um, you know, I'll get students who come in and say, "I've had this class. I've had this this before. You know, I didn't learn anything new from this lecture." because I already knew racism is bad.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Or, but when I had asked them before we did the lecture, you know, are there individual biological traits that can be used to identify people by race, they said yes.
0: Right.
1: So on the one hand, they can acknowledge that discrimination is bad, but they don't understand how deeply entwined their, their, um, their thinking about the biology actually means that they actually are discriminating because if they assume that the biology is the explanatory factor, that's what has allowed us historically to say, well, you know, Oh, this person is doing this. Well, you know, it's because they're this race and they're born to be that way. Right. Right. And allows us to discriminate in ways that we may not even realize on the flip side. If you say race is not biological, you get, you could get future, you know, pre-med students in your class to go, race isn't real, Mm -hmm. I'll just be colorblind, and we all know that that approach does not work work at all, what's interesting with the gender component is, um, oh gosh, I don't know if I can explain it well, but basically while talking about race can help Reduce the bias. Sometimes talking about gender increases the bias if you talk about it in certain ways. Interesting. So it's like stereotype threat. Yeah. Um, So there's people who are looking at this, and and I'm trying to figure out a way to do it in my own classes um, about you know like if you start out sort of saying you know do asking the question, um, do you think that males and females are different because of you know physiological hormonal? and genetic differences. And then you explore it that way and you talk about discrimination. It doesn't really seem to, um, fix the problem in the same way that like you would normally present race and it would, would help decrease those ideas.
0: Hmm.
1: Instead, you have to sort of frame it more in the context of, well, there's more, um, I think they did a question where it was something like, why are there more men in science? um, and not as many women or something like that. And so essentially by starting out with a concrete question about a potential stereotype without saying it's a stereotype, I guess,
0: Mm -hmm. like
1: it sort of builds this way forward for you to have students realize through their own sort of uh, self-exploration in the class that the reason why isn't due to to biology, it's due to, um, you know, historical reasons as to why, essentially, mm-hmm. men were thought to be smarter or allowed into those careers and gatekeep and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's tricky because, um, and, and this is where I'm also interested to explore this further in the future, is you know, people always say, well, how should I be teaching about it? And I'll say, well, I tested it in my class, and for my class it works this way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But maybe it doesn't work at Ohio State. Ohio State's a very different institution than Wright State. maybe those students have different experiences that don't allow them to understand the concept in the same way. I have a friend who teaches at Central State, which is, um, I don't know if it's actually a historically black college or university, but um, most of her students are black. And so teaching about race and racism in a class of students who experience racism, right, Mm -hmm. at some point, at least in their life, knowingly or, or unknowingly, Um, it's a very different kind of conversation. So it's fascinating to me that more people aren't talking about that. You know, they don't end sort of saying, well, here's what worked for us. They'll say, so the research concludes that this is what we should be doing. And my thought is "Mm, maybe only in that one setting, right? right? The cultural context varies. So how does that matter? And I, I, in my own papers, I, I write a lot about how identity matters, you know, it's very different for me as a white person to be talking about racism in a classroom um, with mostly white students because to them I'm not perceived as having, you know, any skin in the game. Right. But my colleagues who are not white, when they talk about it, they tend to get more comments that are like, oh, she's preaching to us, you know, right, yeah. he's trying to sell us on this notion. So there's well, a lot of, yeah. I don't know, interesting variables that come into that.
0: Well, and I think that's part of the reason why it doesn't get, I mean, that that was one of the most, uh, one of the units that I got so much feedback from about parents, and not always good feedback, like, mm-hmm. you know, why are you talking about this at all? Like, they're, you know, they're kids, they shouldn't be talking about this subject, and I'm like, no, they're the ones that I think need to be, like, yep. learning about, um, and thinking about these things now, not, you know, not when they get to college, but. You know it's it has an impact yeah. on how they grow up and how they think and what they're gonna think, you know, what they're gonna even be open to by the time they get to college, I guess. So,
1: and I think that's what's fascinating because I mean, being an American but who's raised in um, the U.S. Virgin Islands, so it's an American territory. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I grew up in a much more racially and culturally diverse melting pot of people from all over the Caribbean, right? Mm-hmm. And like racially much more diverse than when I left to go to Wisconsin to go to school. And I was like, I literally was telling people, you know, this is so weird. Everybody Mm here is white. And people were looking at me like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You're white. Why is that Mm -hmm. weird? I'm like, because there's so many white people here and you're all from like Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. This is strange to me. Mm -hmm. And it's not that racism isn't a problem in the Virgin Islands. It, It absolutely is. But people talk about it. They talk about it nonstop. Mm-hmm. And then I came to the Midwest, and and so we talked about that in my class, too, where I'm like, before we even do this, you know, we've already had a conversation at the beginning of the semester about how do we have difficult conversations and what do we do in any topic, whether it's human evolution or, you know, it's sexism, how do we have productive conversations when people disagree with us or our opinion might be in the minority, right? Right. And so we sort of talk about that again and say, you know, um, know, this is definitely going to be a sensitive subject. And I say, and part of that is, you know, I said, you don't think about it, but if you're from the Midwest, there is a culture um, of niceness. And I'm not saying it's bad, but often the the default is, you know, when students will start talking about this, you'll immediately hear them say, we're not supposed to talk about this. (laughs) And I'll say that out loud and we'll kind of laugh, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and sometimes humor, too, can help even in a sensitive subject. Like I'll say, it's like the moment that you realize um, not everybody says, oh, you know, (laughs) it's like there's subcultures within our cultures. So, you know, three states away to the east or three states away to the west, and you may be outside of that that subculture, and you know, you know, people will say, oh, you know, New Yorkers are rude, or um, everybody who, you know, lives out west peers this way, right. and so, you know, I think that, that that's, I'm unsurprised that parents would have a complicated feeling about that, because if you've been raised your whole life in an area where it's like, we don't give power to racism and sexism by not talking about it, right, like, that's how you, diffuse it, Mm -hmm. then it's very hard when someone says, no, we're going to talk about it anyway. (laughs) And most of my students, you know, I mean, uh, millennials and Gen Z are the most tolerant generation. And and most of them that are in my class, I'll say, you know, you're the most tolerant generation, but racism and sexism is institutional. Mm -hmm. You can continue to be, you know, kind to others and open to others. But if laws exist that, um, uh, you know, privilege some people and not others, it doesn't matter how nice you are, they're still going to be discriminated against. And for a lot of students, that's the moment where they go, I guess I didn't realize. And I use our communities. I use the east side and the west side. Mm -hmm. And I do a little scenario where I say, well, you probably have heard someone say, you know, well, my, you know... Brother or whatever, my cousin rather probably. Mm-hmm. My cousin, you know, says that he didn't get a job because they they had to hire the Hispanic guy. Right. And if you live on the east side, where the working class is mostly white, you may see more white people who are not getting jobs. But mm-hmm. if you live on the west side, because of the, and I I tell him I can't explain redlining. You know, this we could have a whole class on all mm-hmm. these subjects. But the reality is. We're split. So the working class living on the west side is mostly non white. And as of the last census, I don't know what the census will say. I mean, it's almost 50 50 white, non white in Dayton, mm-hmm. which kind of surprised me because the national average used to be like 70% white, 30% non white, but we're like 48 mm-hmm. 52. And so I'll say, okay, let's take a community in the west side that's mostly white, or sorry, mostly non white, and a community in the east side that's mostly white, oh. and let's apply that there's a two thirds chance that this person is not going to get a job based on race. And let's look at it. Okay. If this 88% white population, 66% end up with a job, but over here, all the white people get a job and only a handful of the non-white people get a job, right? That's the structural part of it. Right. It's not just about your lived experience. There's a bigger system. And so, you know, when you hear people talking about reverse racism, This is why we not, it's not that we want to be discriminatory, but our lived experiences are are telling us a false story. Right. So, yeah, it's fascinating. I still get a lot of students who will be like, you know, this is propaganda. Mm -hmm. You're being political. I'm like, listen, life is political.
0: Everything Mm -hmm. is political. (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) You think it's not political, but I mean, human evolution, cell biology, some of that stuff was political too, you just weren't as worked up about it, so right. yeah.
0: yeah well, um, I could talk about this for a long time, but I uh, I know I don't want to take too much of your time and uh, <laughs> um, I uh, was wondering, so um, when everything is back open, what what are your, some there's just shifting gears completely here, <laughs> but um, when everything yeah, gets <laughs> When everything gets back opened up, what are some of the favorite places that you um, that you go to normally that you're really missing right now?
1: I don't think it's necessarily the places that I miss. It's people. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will definitely, the first thing I will do is I will get all my girlfriends together and have brunch somewhere. Maybe mm-hmm. at Lily's or Wheat Penny or blind bobs or somewhere downtown just so that we can catch up. Even though most of our stores will be, I was at home. (laughs) I cleaned. I I ate. I (laughs) didn't talk to people except through zoom. Um, but yeah, I mean, in some ways we're lucky, right? We've been out kayaking.
0: Um, how many times have you been out this season already?
1: Um, Jerry and I have gone out on our own quite a bit. Um, I don't know, maybe between eight, eight or ten,
0: oh, wow. which is a lot. Cool. It's
1: a decent amount. But we also went kayaking in the winter, like when it got, you know, the
0: yeah. it was a little it's... bit
1: cooler still, but there was like snow and icicles, you know, we just put on warm clothes and went out.
0: Yeah, you guys are brave. I, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't like going out not when I can get bad. cold. Yeah, I don't know.
1: If if it's windy, don't go out. But otherwise, okay. it's no colder in the boat than it is standing outside. I was yeah. kind of shocked.
0: Right. And there's
1: a lot of cool things. Like, there's little water bugs and, Yeah. I don't know, even, like, um, oxygen bubbles as the icicles
0: melted. Created kind of a cool effect. Nice. But what so about yeah, I don't the... know
1: that there's, like, a particular place where I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to be there because also we have all of the food pickups and right. that kind of stuff. I don't know. Maybe going to the gym would be nice. I, I love the downtown Y. I love the community down there. It's really fun to take classes and catch up, and I don't see those people. I don't necessarily have their phone numbers either, so I don't,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I don't get to catch up with everyone then, see how they're doing.
0: Yeah, I definitely need to go back to the gym. I've been... <laughs> I think I. <that's... laughs> I'm getting close to putting on the COVID nineteen that they talk about. So yeah. It's not well, good.
1: I was actually kind of irritated the other day. We had a um a Zoom call and it was supposed to be about building community in this mentoring network that I was in. And then they basically um I don't this wasn't their intention, but it kind of felt like it was it was uh, instead of saying, you know, first of all, everybody's struggling, like just do what you need to do to you know stay mentally in, in, in you know a baseline of physical health but like we get that you know at this point you have kids that so you're trying to homeschool or classes you're trying to prep or you're still going to work and you, you know are stressed out but I was like drinking a glass of wine as they're like you shouldn't be drinking you shouldn't be eating fatty foods you should be exercising x number of times a day and I was like wow screw you like mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: I'm going to do what live, I'm going to do
1: well. so that I am not crying nonstop. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. Well, do yeah. you have any good uh, book or TV or podcast recommendations for people?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I've been enjoying Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. He was an anthropology major, so he throws in a lot of random anthro stuff. <laughs> is
0: Although that I take a, what issue is with is, when he... Is that a podcast um, or a book? It's a podcast, or? yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. I do take issue when he, um, did one with people at his alma mater in LA and said anthropology was the most useless degree ever because he clearly lives like anthropology is inside of him. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) clearly, um, he talks about it nonstop. It did not ultimately become his career, but I'm sure his training in anthropology has influenced his life, his acting career and so on. Um, I'm reading a book off and on called Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay.
1: It is um, part of a series of books by Caitlin Doughty. She is a mortician, oh, okay. and she is part of the positive death movement. So if you're scared of death, which a lot of people are right now, I definitely recommend those books. Interesting. Joe's Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and other stories from the crematorium and From Here to Eternity – and her books are basically sort of saying, Listen, you're going to die. And I was scared of dying. So what did I do? I went and I worked at a crematorium. <laughs> nice. And through these books, it's just fascinating how she sort of explores cross cultural attitudes towards death. Um, the cat, well, my cat eat my eyeballs is questions that kids have sent to her. She's a YouTube <laughs> channel. Oh, wow. And she cool. started um, an organization called the Order of the Good Death.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And. Um, Yeah, so it's like, uh, through in this book, she's sort of using humor to diffuse some of those common fears, you know, like, if I stay in the house, my mom dies, and I'm in the house with her, like, during COVID-19, am I going to get sick? No, you can't get sick from a dead body, you know, if it's sitting there for um, weeks or something, yes, is it going to start to smell? Sure, but most of our houses, you know, here in Dayton, the 1800s, that front parlor room, that was where you put your dead ones Mm -hmm. and people came and visited and you prepared the body and you washed and cleaned and there was no embalming. You didn't put the, you know, disinfectants inside the body. Right. Um, you you just lived with it, right? The body expelled all of its gases and stuff and you cleaned it and you put it in clothing and you had time to, to sort of mull over the fact of that loss. So she talks a lot about some just sort of interesting how loss and grief in general, because of our fear of death, um, is manifested by the fact that we don't we're we do not get to be around death a lot. We typically are afraid mm-hmm. and then someone comes and takes the body and we don't see it. Huh. That's a good one 100%. right now. Okay.
0: Television,
1: I don't know. There's so much television. <laughs> I think if there's one. Yeah, I don't know if there's one. Oh um, I do love Schitt's Creek, if oh, no one's okay. seen that one. That was like the best show ever. The final season is about to come up, but Let's if see. you need to laugh, I think that's probably one of the funniest ones. Gonna, and then if you yeah. actually, a podcast, if you want to laugh so hard that if you were driving, but you're probably not doing a lot, but you'd almost run yourself off the road, mm-hmm. is My Dad Wrote a Porno, is the funniest <laughs> podcast I've ever listened to.
0: Okay. It's I'll not really it
1: very pornographic- the guy doesn't understand female anatomy. It's not very sexy, but it is hilarious.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. So. I will check that out. Thank you. <laughs> uh would well, do you have any advice for people on making it through uh the pandemic? <sighs>
1: uh, everything that you're feeling is normal. Um,
0: just
1: like, don't, don't challenge yourself to, you know, you're doing it wrong. I think that's the biggest one that I noticed. People are like, I see everybody baking sourdough bread or <laughs> other people, you know, are doing this or that. It's like, everybody has a different circumstance In our household, we're both still working. Um, although I'm getting to the point where now I can at least not be teaching, um, starting sort of the end of this week um but you know everybody processes it in a different way there's no one one way or right way to do it and so yeah if you have weeks where you're just on the couch incapacitated there's millions of other people who are the same way if you're
0: mm-hmm.
1: powering through it and you know doing really well that's great too you know it's right. like it's just i don't know I find too many people are like, well, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? No, you should be doing whatever you're doing. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's complicated. And it's, it's uh... funny because some people have said to me, like, you seem so calm through this. And I think we sometimes don't realize how our life experiences shape and shape us that way. Like, mm-hmm. I lost my mom when I was six. Three years later, I was in my house during a hurricane as it ripped apart. Wow. And we lived without power for... Nine months. Wow. Yeah, nine months. I had to go to the States and go to school temporarily. Uh, We had to rebuild our house, you know. Like, my parents were getting sick, like, all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, and I grew up in a place that wasn't as convenient as the United States. So, for me, I think sometimes in situations like this, I'm able to power through a little more. And it's not because I'm doing it right. It's because my life experience makes me like i, I don't know yeah I, I do it the way that my life experience has trained me to right. but someone else who's falling apart isn't doing it wrong it's just that's what their life experience has trained them to do right Absolutely. they need to let it out and yeah. i keep saying i'm waiting for that big cry mm-hmm. it's gonna come soon maybe next week i don't know who can tell who knows well,' be podcast part two when Amy finally cried. <laughs> what happened? <laughs>
0: well, we'll have you back on end, so um thanks so much for taking the time to yeah. talk with me. I really appreciate it, yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: And looking forward to the next time I get to go kayaking with you guys. It should be fun. I know,
1: yes. Let's actually plan something. I feel like all of my kayak stuff has been someone being like, hey, do you
0: want
1: to go out in the kayaks last minute? Like, I'll meet you in half
0: an hour. So, I'm flexible. All right, well, good luck with your grading and uh, have a good one. Thank you. Yeah. All right, you too. Thanks, bye. All right, bye. Alright, that was my friend Amy Hubbard, and uh, it's really good talking with her, and I think that her advice is definitely uh, spot on, that however you're handling it, it's not wrong. So, um, we all go through different um, challenges differently, and I think that's important to remember, so um, whatever you're feeling, you know, that's not not bad, that's okay, so... I hope that you enjoyed this talk. And um, if you did, please maybe uh, give us a like or even write a review. That would be amazing. I would really appreciate it. And um, yeah, until next time, take care, everybody.